You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio day. Alrighty, uh, welcome to Missio. Uh, we had a guest star shaker this morning in Nevea which is wonderful. Uh, also, and and uh, this is at least what we called them when I was growing up in the churches where I that I was a part of. We called them guest preachers, and I was like, "Oh, welcome, guest preacher," which is also like saying good news. In case you're visiting, it's not like this every week. There'll be it'll be different next week. So if this is bad, don't worry. You can come back and run it back again, and it'll be different. Uh, but today we're focused on Mark chapter 2. Um, we're spending some time throughout the year going through the Gospel of Mark. Um, I think we're going to do some other series in the midst of that, but throughout the whole year we'll be kind of, we'll march through uh, one chapter at a time. And the Gospel, sorry, the chapter, chapter 2, um, all the stories are really similar in that there's an encounter with Jesus and the Pharisees and a, and a kind of confrontation as they oppose him. Uh, so I thought about like maybe trying to tie all those together and talk about them all. And I was like, oh, that's too much. So I won't do that. Sarah's, Sarah's shaking her head because I'm notorious for stretching a little long. So I'll try to keep it short. But uh, yeah, this idea throughout the chapter is that there uh, is this continual encounter with Jesus and there's this opposition from uh, the religious tradition, so to speak. And that this opposition is actually moving the story forward to the point where it climaxes actually in the beginning of, I think, Kenny, you up next week? And chapter three, like the section would be two, one through three, seven. And at three, in the beginning of three, they actually make a plan, a plot to kill Jesus, which obviously is going to move the, the story to its climax in the gospel. So this is like this opposition towards God, toward Jesus is actually a thing that moves forward his plan to rescue and redeem. Uh, so today we're kind of looking at just one of those encounters uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So we'll read that passage together uh, and take a look at, at what Mark's up to. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can turn to Mark 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 12 together. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above, above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. 
This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll walk through this story together. Father, we thank you for today, for an opportunity together to uh, hear your word, to be nurtured in the life of Jesus that is ours uh, by faith and by grace. Uh, we ask that uh, that Jesus would indeed come to us clothed in the, the words of Scripture today, that we might encounter him, uh, that we might uh, see our need of Jesus, and that we might move toward him in act of trust and in obedience as his disciples, uh, as followers. I pray that uh, yeah, by your Spirit you'd be at work in us, forming us, making us new, uh, making us more and more like your Son, that we might be your faithful witnesses in, in our neighborhoods and in this world. We pray in the precious name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. So the Gospel of Mark is very um, very quick paced, very fast paced. I feel like it's maybe, uh, as I was reading it and thinking about some of his style, maybe one of the best suited for today's uh, YouTube generation where everything's fast, short, like, uh, we have some professors next door who are like, they're encouraged only to have 15 minute lectures now at ASU because our attention spans are less and we just do things like really quick. So Mike, I mean Mark, excuse me, is like always using the word and where he just switches to the next scene immediately without anything in between. He uses the word immediately often. And it's just like next, 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 next. And in the gospel, it begins with this figure of John the Baptist who's coming to prepare the way for Jesus. Uh, there is a baptism of Jesus that you guys, I think, landed on last week. I was in kids, so I think that was the right story. Uh, and Jesus then begins his ministry in Galilee. And also at the beginning of his ministry, it says that John was arrested, which doesn't really bode well for Jesus' ministry. So you've got this guy setting up the, the play for you, and he gets arrested right as you begin, uh, which is kind of a telltale sign of sorts. And then Jesus begins uh, preaching the word, it says in Mark 1, uh, 15, the time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is at the core of what Jesus has come to do, what he's come to proclaim, is this good news that the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. And he calls some disciples in that first chapter. He's healing some people. And at the very end, he heals uh, a leper. And he tells him not to say anything. But instead, the leper goes out and he announces all that has happened to him in and through Jesus. And as a result, Jesus can't be in the city. He has to go out to the lonely places. So this is kind of the backdrop, which is why it says a few days later in verse 1 of chapter 2, Jesus again enters into Capernaum. So he, he did something really awesome. He heals the leper. People are going crazy. Like he can't even, like he can't breathe. So he gets out of Dodge a little bit. He's in a lonely place. And now he's going to come back in to Capernaum. And as soon as the people hear it again, they're excited and crowds are gathering once again. So that's the beginning of this picture that Mark is painting for us. Uh, there's, uh, crowds are a big part of what's going on. There are people gathered, there are people excited, there are people who want to see this man who want to be uh, near him to see what he's going to do next. And he's in someone's home and people have gathered in such large numbers that there's no room left, they, not even outside the door. So they've piled up on him again in a similar way, perhaps. And Mark tells us that Jesus preached the word to, him, to them in verse 4. So, or sorry, verse 2. I got ahead of myself. 
Not, so he preached the word to them. And what was that word? That word was what we read in Mark 1.15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's important for understanding what's going to unfold in the scene next. So the word is about this reality that in God, in Jesus, excuse me, God has drawn near and he is enacting his kingdom, his new rule, his new reign. And Jesus preaches this word to them. And after preaching, or while preaching this word, I should say, some men come and they can't get in. They're bringing this friend of theirs uh, who is paralyzed on a mat and they need to get to Jesus. And since there's no room and there's no way to get to the door, they go onto the roof and they begin tearing apart the roof and lowering their friend in. So Jesus sees their faith in verse five and he responds by saying to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Which I think is a really interesting response because so far in the gospel, Jesus has been healing lots of people. Uh, There hasn't been too much mention of the forgiveness of sins. And the people have been largely coming so that whatever ailments they have, or if they're, so it's a demon possession that he could cast them out, or if it's, it's a leprosy that they, he could get rid of that, whatever the case may be, but that's, that's the desire as they come to him. And so presumably that would be the desire of the four friends in this paralyzed man. They're, they're tearing apart the roof to get to this wonder worker, this healer, uh, this perhaps Messiah to unknown. Uh, there's... There's a desire to get to him and experience that same, uh, that same relief from what is ailing them. And so they, they get the roof over him, they lower him down, and Jesus says, seeing the, these words I think are uh, important and uh, challenging, I think, even for myself, because it doesn't answer all the questions. But he says, seeing their faith, son, you are, your sins are forgiven, which is not the way that we typically think about it. Because it's like, because of my faith, my sins are forgiven. So that's kind of challenging. And Mark doesn't give us any answers about that. So I just leave you with that tension to think about for later, later throughout the day. Um, but seeing their faith, he says, your sins are forgiven. Not immediately, at least. Not get up, take your mat, and walk. Not what you would expect. Probably not what they expected. But at the same time, against the backdrop of the Old Testament, it actually makes a lot of sense. The response makes a lot of sense. Because there is... Uh, always uh, throughout the scriptures a connection between sin, sickness, uh, sin and sickness. And so healing is uh, often can be used interchangeably. Like so the forgiveness of sins sometimes in the Old Testament Old Testament is said that oh I've been healed and the indication is also that the sins have been forgiven. Now sins, sins and forgiveness are not always linked because we remember another account in the Gospel of John when Jesus says it's not because of this man's sin that he's blind, but it's so that God might be glorified. So it's not always that they're linked. And yet at the same time, because sin rules in the world, because everything is subject to the curse, we might say that, yes, all sickness, all maladies, all disease, all of the death that we experience, which sickness is just a uh, just like a marker. It's like death's pressure prior to its fulfillment in some ways. All of that is a marker of the reign and rule of sin of the world being subject to the curse, of our own bodies being subject to the curse. So in this sense, Jesus is pressing up against those two things simultaneously. So in that your sins are forgiven prior to talking about his sickness. But when he says that, 
the focus of the scene shifts immediately from the friends who are lowering him into the roof and the paralyzed men and to the scribes or the teachers of the law who are watching this go down because they get upset. And they say in verse 6, well, they're thinking to themselves, they don't say this out loud, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, for us, I feel like maybe some of that doesn't register because when we think of Jesus, we automatically think of one who forgives sins and we have that expectation built in. But that's not really being fair to the teachers of the law or the scribes because they had all these expectations about who the Messiah was, what he would be like. He would be righteous. He would be sinless. He would deliver them from the rule of uh, those who are not God, uh, whoever that was, whomever that may be at the time, the Romans. Uh, but there's not an expectation ever for the Messiah to be one who forgives sins. They didn't, they didn't see that coming. There wasn't from uh, the Old Testament per se, there wasn't a clear picture, at least for them, of like what, how that would happen, what that would look like, or that he would actually do that sort of thing, that he would have that kind of authority. Only God has that authority. So even if Jesus was claiming to be this kind of person, it was, it's not evident, self-evident to them that that's actually true. There's a, a sense in which he's claiming something that shouldn't be his, and they're uh, opposed to that. They're uh, shocked by that. They're offended by that. There is a sense in which uh, they're right that only God can forgive. What they don't understand is that Jesus, this Messiah, is actually God. That this is an opportunity for him to reveal something about who he is that they don't yet see. And that many uh, do not yet see. The disciples, even though they walk with him throughout the gospel, often do not see Jesus for who he is. So I'm a little sympathetic toward the, the teachers of the law in this moment because they, uh, they don't know, they don't have an expectation for this Messiah to be one who forgives sins. And Jesus is aware of what they're thinking, and in response, he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Jesus' response, I think, again, is, is an interesting one, because it is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, but it is also greater to say, a greater thing, takes greater authority, greater power to say your sins are forgiven. The scribes, the rabbis, they would have known about healing that in the Old Testament that would have been normal, that that would have been a part of their work, about a part of their tradition, a part of their authority, but they never would have claimed the authority to heal because that only God can heal, as they indicated. And so that's, that's a part of the shock, that's a part of the offense. Uh, it is one thing to, to be an instrument in the hands of God for them, uh, for healing to take place in their world. But it would be another thing, a, an error, to take the, the authority upon yourself to say, oh yeah, I forgive your sins also. That's not appropriate for you to do. And yet Jesus says, which is easier, and at the same time we recognize which of those is a greater statement. That is to say it has greater authority or greater power behind it. And now this is a way of validating what he's actually said by saying your sins are forgiven because now he can say to the man, get up, take your mat and walk. And now it's illustrated or demonstrated, it's verified that what Jesus said about the forgiveness of his sins is actually true. He does have the power and authority to do that. And the reason, the very reason why he did it in this order 
according to verse 10, is so that I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, the, so he said to the man, sorry, excuse me, I tell you to get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. So the order of the events is, is meant to verify what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done, that he does have the authority on earth to forgive sins, and that he does have the power to do so, and that this actually reveals who Jesus is and what's happening in this present moment. And again, this would be a moment. Uh, this would be a time to look back to Mark 1:15. The kingdom of God has come, drawn near to you. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God comes in the person of God. This is revealed in this act of this radical act of forgiving sins that they didn't expect, and of healing this man, of saying, "Get up, take your mat, and walk out." This is Jesus pushing back the domain of sin and pushing back against that curse that we're subject to and inviting this man into a new humanity to be restored, to be renewed, to be made whole in every dimension of his life in respect to his relationship to God and that his sins are forgiven and in respect to his body and that he is made whole and he is lowered through the roof on a mat, paralyzed. We don't know exactly what's wrong, but he cannot walk. And he gets up and walks out. That his whole person, his whole being has been restored because the kingdom of God has come in and through this Jesus who has the authority to forgive sins. And the crowds are amazed that this has taken place and they all praise God saying, we've never seen anything like this. So they've witnessed the power and the authority of God in and through Jesus. And this affects praise as a response. They've witnessed the fact that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. And it is actually making all things new. This is what the text says in Mark chapters, chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. But we also need to take a look at what the, the text or the story is trying to do. It's important to think through what the text is saying, but a, maybe a, a more fundamental question is what is the text trying to do in us as we hear what is being said by Jesus, by the different actors or persons in the story. The story is actually intended to create an encounter with the living Jesus who has the authority to forgive sins. That's part of uh, his writing style as a whole. That you. I'll read that first again in verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Even the way that Mark has written that particular phrase speaks to us in an immediate fashion right now. So it's like, I want you, Jonathan, to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. I want you, Ryan Lynn, to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know. I want you, like right now, in this moment, I want you to encounter the living Jesus not just the man on the mat, but I want Kenny, I want Cammy, I want Stacia. I, I want all of you to encounter Jesus. That's the point of the story. That's what it's trying to do. That's what Mark's aim is. That's the whole aim of the gospel. One commentator said that every uh, parochope, parochope, you can correct me on how to say that. Uh, it's a, you probably, it's not familiar. It's only used really in biblical studies where it's basically just means a set of verses 
that form a coherent unit or thought. Every single one of them in Mark, with the exception of two, has Jesus as the subject or the focus. And what that indicates is Mark's aim, Mark's goal, what he's trying to do is so that in every single unit of coherent thought, you might actually encounter Jesus. It's an invitation, well, at first I should say, and in this encounter, it's not just to give you information. So it's not just to say, like, so that you believe the right things about Jesus. So that you, say, that you can say, yeah, Jesus is the Son of Man, he has authority to forgive sins. Uh, yeah, I get that. That's check, check mark. It's good to go. I think I'm thinking rightly about Jesus now. I've got the facts sort of of the story. I've got what the text says, and I could repeat that back to you. But that's not actually the goal. That's not what's happening. Mark's actually inviting a response from us in this story and in, in this moment. I'm going to suggest that our response should be shaped at least in part by who we identify most with in the story. So there are multiple characters or multiple actors in the story who are, in some sense, encountering Jesus. So we have the group of four friends. We have the crowds and we have the Pharisees. We could say the paralyzed man would be another person who encountered Jesus, which would be obvious and true, but we don't get a lot of information about him. So it's like hard to, hard to know what it, his experience was like, which is really interesting when you think about it. And I think reinforces the idea that Jesus wants you to encounter, I mean, excuse me, Mark wants you to encounter Jesus. Because a lot could be said about what this man experienced, what his response was, what he did. He just gets up and walks out because he's not the actual focus of the story. Jesus is the focus of the story. So even though, though this miraculous thing happens to them, he just exits stage left. And all we hear is the response of the crowds who are amazed that the kingdom of God has come, has drawn near in this Jesus, and he's making things new. And he's bringing healing to a world that's subject to brokenness. And so thinking about how these people encountered Jesus in the story uh, and then seeing like, okay, which of those do I identify with most so that I can think through how Jesus might be encountering me in this moment through this story. And I think a lot of times we get, uh, when I've heard this story, the focus is on the friends, not, and that's not a bad thing. They're exemplars of faith, right? They're people who want to get to Jesus, who see their need for Jesus. They believe that he can actually do what they need to be done. They can heal this man who's on the mat. And they're making a way there where there is none present. So there wasn't a way to Jesus, but because of their faith, their active trust in who he was and what he could do, they made a way. They peeled back the roof and they dropped their friend into the room. So those hindrances don't stop them. They don't... Uh, eliminate uh, the possibility of encountering Jesus for them. They're exemplars. In that sense, we want to be like them. As disciples of Jesus who, in this act of trust, go to Jesus and make a way to get to Jesus so that we might receive from him what we need. But at the same time, I think we might more often than we think, or more, uh, more often than we're inclined to think, be like the crowds or be like the Pharisees. So we're reading it as both insiders and outsiders. What I mean by that is like, yes, we're disciples of Jesus. We follow him. We want to be like the friends. Always like the friends. They're insiders in the story. They get it. They see Jesus for who he is. They respond correctly. We don't always do that. Sometimes we're like the disciples who are like hard they have a hard time getting their heads around who Jesus is, even though they're walking with him and they're experiencing all these wonderful things. Uh, they have a hard time, yeah, believing that he is who he 
says that he is. Now, the crowds in the gospel, sorry about that, Mike holding the mic, right, with the wind, all this good stuff. So the crowds, it's an interesting thing that in the gospel of Mark, so thinking through their encounter with Jesus, or somewhat of a non-encounter in some ways, they're sort of passive in the gospel of Mark. They're always present, they're always interested, there's intrigue, like what will Jesus do next, or could Jesus provide maybe a meal for me, whatever that may be. Looks like maybe he has some teaching, some philosophy that's pretty interesting that I'd like to kick around in my head. And I'd like to be close so that I can see that, so that I can hear that. But proximity is not discipleship. So the crowds are near Jesus. They're right up next to him. The friends can't even get to him because they're right at his feet. But that's not discipleship. And the crowds are enthusiastic. Since they came from everywhere, they filled up the place. Jesus had to get away to lonely places before this because they were all over him. Had, and now he comes back, and they're back again. They're super enthusiastic. But enthusiasm is not faith. It's not the act of trust that's illustrated for us in the friends. And they're <laughs> taking their uh, man, the paralyzed man in the mat through the roof. So perhaps you might identify more with the crowds this week or this month. I'm not, not really sure. Maybe th this day, there's like a sense in which you've been near Jesus but you haven't actually been following Jesus. Or maybe you've even been enthusiastic about Jesus, but you haven't had actual faith. That leads to, to something concrete, some kind of concrete action in your life. This is the first time that faith comes up in the Gospel of Mark with these four friends. And it doesn't tell us anything about what they believe, what they know, or what they feel. The only thing that we see in this story about their faith is this, like, crazy action that they'd tear off the roof to get to Jesus. They see and recognize their need, their friends need, and they'll do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. It's what they're doing. That's what's highlighted by their faith. Not what they're believing, thinking, or feeling. Not that those things are unimportant. Uh, also, the teachers of the law, how did they encounter Jesus in the story? They opposed Jesus. Uh, they had a hard time. In fact, they, they pressed up against Jesus. And perhaps in some ways they were hindered by their learning, by their status as those who have authority in terms of a religious tradition, uh, and by their, their role in the community. There's a, there's a sense in which they're unable to see their need for him, which is actually the same as the paralytic man. So there's one who has physical paralysis, who's dropped through the roof, there's a sense in which the scribes have a spiritual paralysis in which their religion, their tradition, their authority makes them unable to see that they need Jesus just like the paralyzed man needed Jesus. They'd rather trust in themselves. Uh, they're not uh, free or open to being expanded in the sense of like, oh, maybe this one who has come does have the authority to forgive sins. They're opposed to that. And they do not receive from him in the same way that the paralyzed man and the friends do. So my invitation now is just in groups of maybe two, three, four, five, whatever small group around you, uh, I want you to think through and think of this as a part of our confession, which is why we moved it to the back today. So turn with one another and you're thinking through, okay, who do I identify with most? And for some of you, it might be the four friends. But for some of us, I think, if we're being honest, we have to identify ourselves more with the crowd or with the Pharisees. And it's an opportunity to confess 
and to receive from Jesus forgiveness, for he has authority on earth to forgive sins. So turn with one another and discuss that, uh, and we'll pull you, I'll pull you back in a few minutes, and we'll confess together as a community. All right. prayer is that as we encounter Jesus today through the story in the gospel of Mark, uh, that the spirit would uh, convict, uh, not for the sake of shaming, uh, but for the sake of uh, a realization of the need that we have for Jesus. For who, who goes to Jesus except for those who acknowledge and recognize their need? Uh, so if we're not made aware, then we're quite capable of assuming that we're pretty self-sufficient. Uh, so hopefully that was uh, something that is at work in us and God is still at work in us in that respect. But as a community also want to confess together the ways that we have not perhaps followed Jesus as the friends, uh, but maybe we, our lives have looked more like the crowds or perhaps even the, the teachers of the law. So if you'll Turn in your handout to the confession piece, which is at the front, even though we're toward the end. Uh, I know that's confusing, so I'll point you back there before I start. We'll confess our sins together. And then for assurance today, we're, we're coming to, to the table as a part of that. And we'll set that up like we usually do. But uh, through this um, Lord's Supper, we actually are encountering Jesus, who, who does bring forgiveness. So let's confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. So uh, I, th I think the tradition is you, you will start the song as we take communion. Okay, well, I just want maybe to encourage you to uh, listen to the words, tune into the words as best you can, that maybe they might be more than just a song that you sing. They might be a prayer uh, that you sing as well. Uh, that This Jesus who is strong and kind is the one who we come to at the table. So Jesus does have the power, the ability, and he also has the authority to forgive sins. And he has pursued us, that is God has pursued us in faithfulness as he seeks to bring uh, us life, uh, to deliver us from our sins, to deliver us from the subject, being subject to a curse. There's a sense in which we have, um, we experience that even today because God has pursued us by sending his son who has embraced a cross, even death on a cross so that we might live. And that it is actually as one who has embraced the cross that he has the power and the authority to forgive our sins. So as you come today, I pray that the, the words of the song might also be a prayer of this Jesus who is strong, who has the power to forgive your sins and who is kind, who desires 
uh, and loving kindness to bring forgiveness to his people. So on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Wherever, whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And here's where we proclaim the mystery of faith together. So Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Say it with me. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Come to the table.